This is a special midweek edition of Judaism Unbound, anti-Semitism, nativism, and immigration. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And it's only two days after the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. We're still trying to figure out what exactly one can say about it. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about it again in the near future. In the meantime, we actually had some audio that we recorded not long ago that we think is particularly relevant on this day. And we want to share it with you, even though it's part of a larger collection of audio that we'll be sharing over the next few weeks and that we weren't planning to release quite yet. On Judaism Unbound, we often try to put contemporary issues into historical context. And a recent opportunity to collaborate with the American Jewish Historical Society and the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia provided us a chance to get a lot of historical information in audio form as we walked through the exhibits at the National Museum of American Jewish History, along with a variety of American Jewish Studies scholars who were part of the Scholars Conference that was hosted by the American Jewish Historical Society in mid-June of 2018. Just for some context, the American Jewish Historical Society is the oldest ethnic cultural archive in the United States. It provides access to more than 30 million documents and 50,000 books, photographs, art, and artifacts that reflect the history of the Jewish presence in the United States from 1654 to the present. Significantly, HAHS houses the archives from HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society's New York headquarters. And as you might know, one of the motivations of the murderer at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh apparently had to do with a special Shabbat that was organized by HIAS to focus the Jewish community's thinking upon refugees and immigration in America. As such, we thought it was especially interesting to release this audio right now that we have where we looked at an exhibit about the Johnson-Reed Act, which was an act limiting immigration to the United States in the 1920s, with Professor Ellie Letterhendler of Hebrew University, who is a scholar of American Jewish life. His most recent book, published in 2016, is called American Jewry, A New History. I should note that there is a little bit of background noise on the audio here because we were walking through the museum as there were folks all around us. But we're sure that you're going to be able to hear the interview just fine in spite of the noise. Yeah, um, <laughs> I uh, so many elements of what you just said resonated with me, mostly that neither one of us nor I think pretty much anyone has figured out precisely what the words are right now. I mean, it's kind of a moment beyond words, uh, but... Yeah, I mean, it's been two days. It has, it's not been much time since the, a moment that will be marked in Jewish history and in American history and, and in broader history for, for a really, really long time and needs to be marked for a really long time and really needs to be held and understood. And look, we're, we're, we're podcasters and it might feel like sometimes all we're doing is talking. And to a certain extent, that isn't wrong. Like we, we are, we are words people. We are talking into microphones and communicating to people around the country and the world. And we hope that that will then translate into action. But in and of itself, this is not always where the action is for our society. But right now, 
I, f- I count us really lucky and really blessed because this audio that you're about to hear, we we really wanted to to have somebody at the museum speak about this. But really, we reached out to all sorts of scholars who are at this incredible American Jewish Historical Society conference. And we just said, hey, we'd love to speak with you about artifacts in the museum. Who's interested? And Professor Letterhandler was one person who expressed interest. And we happened to get something that turned out today to be such a relevant contemporary testimonial. Obviously, the the events he's talking about, the Johnson Reed Act that passed, were almost 100 years ago. 1924 is the date that will loom very large in this episode. But this is really this is really a right now episode. This isn't just a historical episode. When we have pressing political moments where we need to turn to one another as Jews and turn to one another as people beyond just the Jewish community and really combat the forces that would harm us and would harm so many other marginalized groups in our society. We can't just do that in our moment. We must also look back and recognize other moments, especially when they can teach us so much. Because this isn't just academia. This isn't just some interesting historical narrative. This is something that we all need to internalize and apply. Yeah, and I would just note that what's really interesting and I think significant about Hyas is that it started as an organization that was created in order to help Jews immigrate to the United States. And when that task became much smaller, Hyas didn't go away, but it turned its attention to helping others immigrate to the United States. And a quote that I've heard in conjunction with what they do, and it might even be their own quote, was that initially they did this because they, the immigrants, were Jews, and now we do it because we are Jews. With that, let's listen into the interview with Professor Letterhendler. So the document that we have here is the uh, it's called uh, the Act to Limit the Migration of Aliens. It's the Johnson Reed Act of uh, 1924. Uh, it succeeded the previous. Uh, immigration restriction law of 1921. It is the, you know, in, informally called the Quota Act because it, it uh, reinstituted and in fact uh, made the quotas uh, uh, more stringent. The quotas that were instituted first in 1921 used a kind of a baseline figure of uh, the American population uh, the makeup of the American population in terms of ethnic origins uh, dating to uh, 1900. And in the 1924 Act, the baseline was moved back to 1890. That in itself was a way of saying, let's use as a baseline a time in American history when um, there were fewer of these immigrants here. It was weighted very specifically uh, to favor countries in northern and western Europe. Uh, similarly, it was weighted against with much, much lower quotas for the countries of eastern and southern Europe. So that Jews, for example, who were coming mainly from eastern Europe by that time, although some were still coming from Germany and Austria, but still, we're dealing mainly with eastern Europe as the great reservoir of Jewish population in the world at the time, um, the Jewish immigration rate declined between 1920 and 1925 by 90%. And that shows you, you know, pretty much how, how drastic the effect was on the quotas. Now, it should be said 
but there was no Jewish quota. Jews were counted when they entered the United oh, States. They were counted as Hebrews. Uh -huh. Jews was uh, not considered uh, polite enough, but they were counted. Nevertheless, there was no quota for Hebrews per se. Uh, the idea that depressing the quotas for Eastern Europe would effectively reduce the number of Jews coming in, that was very clear in the minds and in the words on record of the congressmen and senators who passed these laws, uh, which is why the Jewish community in the United States uh, went to the barricades to try and keep the gates open. They realized that by saying immigrants who want to come to America, who are like us, and by the government saying they're undesirable, indirectly, they're saying something about us too. They're saying that, well, we may not be the ideal image of the American citizen. And they couldn't, ex they couldn't accept uh, that, of course. So they went down fighting, but they did go down. Restrictionism was victorious. Was the restriction on immigration, to what extent was an attempt to reduce the number of Jews sort of driving it as opposed to one of many consequences? Nobody was going to say outright, we want to restrict the number of Jews, although some people did say that, but it didn't go into the legislation, obviously. Um, even then, there were enough people around Washington who knew better than to do that. But by depressing the quotas for places like Poland, it was very, very clear. It's not just that Jews were coming from those countries. Jews were disproportionately represented among the immigrants coming from those countries. In other words, if you look at the, the data on overall immigration to the United States, Jews, who are very, very small people, given the world population. Right. Jews constituted 11% of all of the immigrants entering the United States in the period leading up to 1921. 11% is a lot, but not only that. Very, very few Jews left America and went back home, as opposed to many of the other immigrants, Italians, Poles, Greeks, Slovaks, many of them up to 30% and more were transmigrants who went mm -hmm. back home. Jews didn't do that, by and large. But that meant that the 11% that they constituted coming in shot up to 18% when you just when you measure net migration. That is, among those who stayed, the Jews were 18%. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great deal. So they were visible. Uh, they were also very heavily concentrated in New York City and several other major cities. So that the, the idea that restricting immigration from Eastern Europe was likely to bar a large number of uh, Jews from coming in, that wasn't something that one needed a physics degree to figure out. Uh, nevertheless, it has to be reiterated, there was never a Jewish quota. Uh, it was country-based. I mean, but that sort of, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it has a lot of contemporary resonances, it you know, because, it certainly you does. know, that question of is it a Muslim ban or, or is it, it just happens ban? to be a country ban yeah, for these yeah. countries that are mostly Muslim? Absolutely. But I think it also helps to explain why, by and large, many Jews in this country today tend to be more liberal on immigration issues, even though it's not likely to affect Jews, uh, but they are they're sensitive to the fact that in the past, in, in this country as well as other countries, once you start a rhetoric that's anti-foreign, 
something happens to the political culture that you're living in. Now, do we have a sense of, let's say, that the Johnson Reed Act had never taken place, given the numbers of Jews that were coming annually at that time, and if we can sort of project forward to the let's say, 15 years between uh, mm. that time and when the doors would have closed from Europe, yeah. how many Jews would have likely come to America? Oh, a lot. We know because a lot of Jews did manage to emigrate from Central and Eastern Europe between the two world wars. They went to Latin America, they went to Palestine, they went all over the place, anywhere that they could get in, because especially after 1933 or after 1935, this became more crucial, and Jews were constantly emigrating from Europe. If we, if we look at you know, the percentage, how many were entering the United States, which was a very small number at that time, and how many were entering the other countries, if we imagined the proportions reversed, in other words, many, many more Jews entering the United States, rather than looking elsewhere, uh, then clearly we'd be looking at a level of at least 100,000 to 200,000 a year, certainly when you get into the 1930s. Consider that there were 3 million Jews in Poland alone. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest Jewish population at the time in Europe was in Poland. There were always backlogs in the visa applications process, and uh, people waited for years. Uh, in order to have their papers begin to be processed. And even then, uh, of course, uh, there were reversals. Uh, most famously, uh, I believe it was 1940, the State Department, under conditions of war, decided that it would uh, no longer accept the uh, visa applications papers that had already been approved up until that point. And those people holding such papers had to more or less start again one of those people happened to have been my father, uh, so I know a bit about it. And he ended up as a refugee in China, luckily for him, yeah, well. but he was the only one uh, of his family who got out. Can you tell us a little bit more about the period before 1924 and the, the large wave of Jewish immigration to the United States from Eastern Europe was from the 1890s until well, 1920s? Or? We, we, the sort of rule of thumb is you start counting in 1881, but even that's not entirely accurate. Because uh, what constitutes a wave? Well, it starts off small and then builds. Mm -hmm. So the starting off small part happened already in the 1870s. In fact, if we were going to be really accurate, we would have to say the late 1860s. But certainly by the 1870s, uh, you see the beginnings of an immigration stream coming from the parts of Europe that are east of Germany. And that builds in the 1880s, it builds more strongly in the 1890s, and it really hits its stride after 1903. I mean, all in all, if you put in the, sort of at the aggregate of how many Jews left Europe in the period, let's say, between 1880 and 1924, you're talking about a third of the Jewish population of Eastern Europe. That's a lot. 
And and what sort of explained on, on both sides? I mean, was it, I guess on one side, was the situation deteriorating in Eastern Europe or was it that sort of word was getting out about America? And, and, and then on the side of America, what, what was the policy about immigration before the 20s? Like, was it just kind of like nobody was paying much attention and whoever wanted to come could come? Or what, what, was, the, what was, were there limits or how did that work? Okay. Um, as far as the push-pull, it was always a bit of both. America attracted people from all over the world. And so in that sense, the Jews were doing pretty much what everybody else was doing only they were doing it more. And that makes us wonder, well, maybe, maybe there were some factors that were special to the Jewish case that made it possible to account for that difference, that, uh, the percentage difference. And here uh, it's clear that uh, we have to deal with deteriorating uh, situation in Eastern Europe, both economically and politically. Um, but there's also the case that's been made that what we have here is a very interesting chain migration where essentially once somebody has already made the trip, it becomes substantially easier for the next one to come over, be that person a wife or a brother or a sister or a cousin or a friend. And the more, the more Jews left in the 1880s and 1890s, the more likely it was in, let's say, the early 1900s for more and more uh, Jews to follow uh, in their trail. The policy before immigration restriction was enacted was that European whites were by law eligible to become uh, immigrants. Uh, there was very little actual restriction, certainly not based on nationality, race, religion, and that sort of thing. What was going on in the sort of between Let's say 1899 is a point of, in time in which immigration officials start registering incoming immigrants not only by country of origin, but by their ethnic stock. In other words, what, what heritage community, language, religion, and so forth. Because, for example, people coming from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they may have been Poles, Jews, Ukrainians, Croats, Slovenes, Slovaks. And the list goes on. Uh, it, this is what enabled them in the end to institute the quota laws because they knew how many people there were and who they were. That's number one. Number two, there were always certain restrictions. For example, uh, people with certain diseases were barred from entry, a physical as well as mental. People uh, with criminal or radically political uh, records were weeded out. Um, what's striking in the Jewish case is how few people were actually deported. And it's not so much because Jews were so much healthier, uh, but because Jews had advocates standing up for them in hearings. And these advocates were Jews already living in the United States, some of them native-born American citizens, some of them veteran immigrants of an earlier era, um, but they uh, represented uh, immigrants in, the, in these hearings, and they were able to reduce to a very, very small minimum the number of Jewish immigrants who were then rejected and deported back to Europe for various reasons, uh, which is impressive because it means that the Jewish community living in the United States already then understood that the status of their own lives in American society 
was bound up with the status of these potential immigrants. And even the poorest and the least likely among them to appear as, you know, great human material, quote unquote, even, even in those cases, the people who were essentially candidates for deportation were the least likely to uh, appear uh, as desirable. And yet going to bat for those people, the weakest link, meant uh, a great deal in terms of how Jewish American organizations and leaders, organizations like HIAS, they took very seriously this issue. Well, so Lex, often in the past, we have experienced anti-Semitism as its own particular egregious attack on Jews, and practically Jews alone by a majority of people in a certain country. But in America, in, in various ways, largely anti-Semitism has been against Jews as part of a larger group of peoples and people who have been considered undesirable by whatever that group is that is also engaging in anti-Semitism. And I hope that what we take away from this experience is, at least in part, a sense of solidarity, a sense of cohesion with all the other groups that have been victimized of late and that will continue to be victimized by these various forces that seem to have been unleashed in our country. African-Americans, Latinos, people in the trans community who are being attacked uh, both physically and in terms of efforts to erase their very identity, other folks in the LGBTQ community, and of course, other members of religious minorities, especially Muslims. And what really struck me about Professor Letterhandler's description of the Johnson-Reed Act was the way that it didn't name Jews specifically, and yet it was clearly targeted at Jews, but it was also targeted at others. And for better or for worse, often discrimination in America is painted with a broad brush. And those of us who are on the receiving end of discrimination, if we see it as directed only against us, or we become only exercise when it is directed against us, and we only want to respond to the degree that it's directed against us, I think we're both missing the point and also missing an opportunity to make common cause with those with whom we should have common cause. Yeah, I mean, that that was the biggest moment for me, too, is, is when he said there's clear, I mean, when you said, and he agreed that there's clear contemporary resonances here around how the Muslim ban was called not a Muslim ban and how it, there were these terms, there were these euphemisms employed by people in power to make it look like it's not a Muslim ban. But in fact, that's clearly what it was. And to look back and see, oh my gosh, this modality of oppression is not new. It's actually one that has been tried and true and practiced for a hundred years and just mobilized against different groups at different times. That's such a teaching for us to internalize. And what I've really deeply appreciated about so many of the Jewish institutional statements I've seen in the wake of Pittsburgh, so many individual statements in the wake of Pittsburgh, is that people recognize this is not just about Jews. This is absolutely about Jews, but it's not only about us. It's about a system of white supremacy that is hell-bent on marginalizing anybody that is not part of the of of it and jews are are a group that has been and will continue to be targeted by that but we better be on board with 
working with all those others who are targeted by it too, whether that is Muslims, whether that is LGBTQ folks, uh, especially the T and Q in the last few weeks, given policies pushed by our government. Couldn't agree with you more. And I just, I, I just want to emphasize that we, we need to learn from history and we need to read and we need to learn from our elders, our friends and family and loved ones who have experienced different forms of whether it's anti-Semitism or other oppression. We need to learn from those in our communities who aren't Jewish, but are experts in other forms of oppression that they've been targeted by. We need to learn. We need to be open to others. We need to be ready to work. Yeah. And I guess I just want to say that I think it's an important and valuable part of Jewish tradition that after a major loss, we take a week of shiva, you know, of grief and mourning where we focus on the loss. But I hope that after that week is over, as we appreciate so much the solidarity that was shown for the Jewish community, that has been shown, that is being shown for the Jewish community in these days, that after this week of grief is over, we will double down and turn our attention towards solidarity with others. Yeah, that's a huge takeaway. And um, uh, normally we close out the episode by mentioning our website and Facebook page and all that. And that's, that's not how we're going to end it today. We we want to close out this episode by encouraging you to go to Hyas's website, to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society's website, and specifically to go to Hyas.org, H-I-A-S.org. Learn about them, learn about their work, learn about their history. There's so many people in different eras who themselves owe their lives to Hyas. They they came here through that organization to come to the United States, or their parents did, or their grandparents did. Um, and that's true of in the recent past, and it's true a hundred years ago. So learn about them. But really also we encourage you and we implore you if you're able to go to highest.org slash donate and to support them financially. Because it's clear when you have assassins tweeting things like they are about this organization that is doing such good work and targeting innocent people because those people support justice in our world, we need to make sure that those organizations can sustain and continue and even broaden the reach that they have. So please go to www.hias.org slash donate and give whatever you're able to. With that, we're going to thank, of course, the, the partners that this episode owes a debt of gratitude to in the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia and the American Jewish Historical Society. We're so grateful to both of you for helping to make this happen. And with that, um, this has been Judaism Unbound, and I'll see you in the streets.